When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments and superstructures, such as the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Colossus of Rhodes, or the fabulous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. Later, more modern lists of wonders have included the Taj Mahal in India, or featured naturally occurring phenomena such as the Grand Canyon in America, or the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is Greg Proops, who you might have got to know through Whose Line Is It Anyway? I know I did. In addition to his extensive work as an improviser, including on Whose Line in the British shows, presented by me, and the subsequent American series presented by Drew Carey and then Aisha Tyler, Greg travels around America and elsewhere, performing as a stand-up comedian, as well as acting and presenting TV shows. He also has a long-running podcast called The Smartest Man in the World. Well, Greg, Smartest Man in the World is a bold claim, but from the time I first met you, which I think is more than 30 years ago, you've always uh, had an encyclopedic knowledge of books, movies, politics, American, British, European culture. Were you always the cleverest kid in your class at school? Well, to answer your question, I was always sent outside uh, for yeah. answering first, so I, I suppose I was. I think the cleverest kid would have been more popular. Yeah, but uh, you, but you were the one who, <laughs> you were the one that that knew stuff and you read you read the book and could remember. Uh, I'm I'm imagining you you'd read a lot of uh, novels and things and could work out it was not just it's not just a story. There was more to it than that. That's true. Uh, I, but I think you'll recall during school that the person who answered all the questions wasn't necessarily the, uh, yeah. uh, the everyone's favorite. So uh, yeah. there's that. But yes, I've made it work for myself. And, and thank you, Mr. A, for having me on your show. That's a pleasure. Uh, always enjoy talking to you. I can imagine. It was often a bit of a challenge on Who's Line. You never let anything <laughs> lie. So. <laughs> but I think that I think that added to the gaiety of this show. I think. Anyway, I'm sure I'm sure Aisha is, a, is, is nicer to you than I ever was. Um, Certainly better looking. Yeah, certainly. She's way she's way she's way too good looking for the role that she has now taken from me. Um, but a bit of background. I know I think you were born in Phoenix, Arizona, but you, you're basically a Californian, though. You've, you've lived a long time in California and Phoenix, Arizona isn't that far from California, California, I now realize. No, not so much. Uh, my parents moved because my dad was on the run for being a petty criminal. And so we ended up in California. I consider myself a Bay Area person, uh, especially San Francisco. So because uh, I lived there the longest. And um, also it's the town that scares America the most. So I'm very proud of that. Yes, you're, you're on the cutting edge of new movements that uh, <laughs> other places. I, I believe you didn't as a city uh, vote for Donald Trump, but I, I may be just guessing from... Uh, Bits and pieces. I oh no, no, that yeah, he 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 went down in flames there, which is another thing I'm very proud of. Now, I was kind of expecting your wonders uh, to because of this. Uh, I know about your your deep knowledge of all things cultural. I always thought the wonders might have included some plays of Shakespeare, the no novels of Tolstoy, maybe a painting or two from the Renaissance. But there's quite a few surprises on your list, uh, surprising me anyway. And uh, you start with air conditioning. Now, why is that? Um, I feel like uh, of all the things that the modern world has provided, uh, you know, uh, TikTok and uh, all those kind of marvelous things that really enrich our lives intellectually, um, air conditioning must be the best one. I, I can't imagine when people talk about like, oh, would you like to go back to the past? Um, no, I wouldn't like to go back to the past because it was hot and there was no ventilation. And uh, having lived in London and uh, been around the island a lot, um, there's those weird little uh, uh, circular fan things that are over bathroom vents that provide no circulation whatsoever. And then, of course, in the 
uh, uh, the summer you have to go to a cinema to find air conditioning in a lot of places uh, in the UK. Yeah. Um, it's all a bit of a surprise. To, yeah, it's all a bit of a surprise to us still. Air conditioning when we find a room that's cool in uh, in in the summertime, but it's it's catching on. But presumably yeah. it's vital in your part of America, Arizona, and I know San Francisco isn't the hottest, but it is quite a hot state, isn't it? Well, I live in uh, 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 Hollywood now, or Lower California. And uh, yeah, you have to have it here. And it just makes everything better in, in the car. If in Phoenix, uh, in particular, it's a thousand degrees. It's like the surface of mercury during the summertime. And so you go from an air conditioning building, run across the car park, which is melting, and then get into your car, which is a superheated leather thing at that point, which you should be familiar with. And then uh, it's uh, then you uh, cool off immediately by uh, using all the Freon in the world. Um, I, I, I'm very concerned, of course, about uh, climate change. But one thing I don't care about is the use of all the Freon in the world to cool us with air conditioning. I think it's necessary. Well, I was going to raise uh, climate change because I know you're socially aware, but if you're going to be <laughs> lauding the fact that, you know, in the hot parts of the world, but particularly hot, rich parts of the world like America, you're, you're extending the human range of where it can live but only by using up um, fossil fuels and everything, because although it creates cold air conditioning, it does it by also creating heat for the for the rest of the world. So uh, do you think this is going to last much longer, air conditioning? Maybe you'll have to retreat to living in Canada or, or New York. Well, at that point, I'm willing to just uh, hire an ice block and sit on it a lot of the time, I think is how I'm going to cool off. Uh, moving to Canada always sounds like an option for Americans. And then you go up there and stay for a couple of weeks and you're like, I don't know. Uh, they do have legalized marijuana or recreational or in my case, vocational. Um, but uh, yeah, after a while, uh, the, the glitter of Canada rubs right off. I, I mean, I do love it up there, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, it's a trade-off, uh, destroying the rest of the world for my comfort or, you know, being socially conscious. And I don't know if I'm deep enough to make that decision. Well, I don't know. It's, it sounds like the American way. Anyway, that's uh, <laughs> so air, air conditioning. Uh, I looked into a bit of the background of air conditioning. I think it was invented in its sort of form now in America, where um, I suppose it's vital. But we had a few stabs of it around the world, but it was largely just getting blocks of ice and carrying them somewhere and then wafting the air off it. And uh, that was the best uh, that people could manage until I suppose you had to have electricity more than anything else to, to get things going. I don't think it was much gas driven air conditioning or s steam. No, uh, I find that in Scotland during the Edinburgh Festival, there's just a guy in the back of the room who goes, hey, you and blows at you. Well, it is hot in Edinburgh in the in the, in the festival time, isn't it? Because those crowded rooms. And I'm getting a, a feeling, from, I'm getting into this particular wonder, because uh, for the purposes of doing these uh, podcasts, I sit at home in a, what is basically a stationary cupboard with a shut, shut door. There's no air in here. And although it's a very cold day, it's now steaming hot already. So you, you've perhaps convinced me on the merits of air conditioning. And um, I suppose it stands for all the other things that we have in the modern world, like like anaesthetic, that uh, we don't want to go back in the past and find we have to have our teeth pulled out by a pair of pliers. <laughs> <laughs> or as my parents used to do it, they would tie your tooth to a string and then put it in the, uh, a, and then slam it, tie it to a doorknob and then slam the door. And I'm not yeah. kidding. Yeah, that's, that, it works, but it's painful. But only for a oh moment. Oh my goodness. <laughs> BTUs of raw cooling power. Huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. Installed. <laughs> All right, let's go. Uh, that, I think we started with quite a serious and now painful subject, but let's go on to your second <laughs> wonder. If I, what, what's your second wonder? Uh, Paris, France. Um, yeah. I think people, obviously, the English always have a. Uh, a thing against France because, uh, you know, they've ever since the channel got built, um, French people can sneak flavor and, and culture into England. Um, and uh, yeah, but the hatred Paris, goes back much further than that. This, oh, this, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're still angry about uh, uh, the Battle of Cressy, I think. Um, oh, no, not that so much. It's more the Norman Conquest, I think. It goes back there. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely well, a French victory. I, I believe he was William the Bastard to you guys, yeah, uh, to them. Yeah. Uh, well, Paris is just the most glorious place in the world. And I'm lucky enough to uh, 
have done comedy there over the years um, at a comedy club uh, that uh, was in a terrarium on uh, uh, the Canal Saint Martin, which is a famous place, and uh, it had glass walls. So when you'd finish the show, the whole place was sweating uh, inside. But then also uh, Jennifer hooked us up with um, my wife Jennifer, yes, uh, 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 Shakespeare and Company, which is a beautiful bookstore on uh, mm. the Seine across from Notre Dame. Yeah. And uh, we do the podcast from there. And people say to me, what's your favorite place in the world to play? And I'll say Paris. And then Americans, because Americans are Americans, go, well, how come Paris? And I'm like, because when you're done with the show, you're in Paris. Because when you play Cleveland and you're done with the show, Cleveland's lovely, but then you're in Cleveland. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It's not as lovely as Paris. Right? America, although Lake Erie, when it's on fire, um, Americans will say to me, do the French people get your material? And it's like, I, I think you'll find people who don't speak English don't tend to come to English speaking performances and that the Parisians are quite uh, intelligent and speak many languages and often speak awesome English. It's just, if you've seen it uh, and you've been there, um, they just, for instance, had, um, they just, for instance, conducted um, uh, uh, Josephine Baker. They just put Josephine oh, Baker yeah. in, in the Pantheon. And they had a beautiful ceremony in Paris uh, with the President Macron and all these celebrities and Josephine Baker's family. And th they're aesthetic. They're just meticulous about how everything looks. When the Eiffel Tower had its anniversary, they had that giant disco and all the lights and everything. And I just don't think there's another place in the world that cares that much. They may not care about social justice and they may not care about a lot of things as much as we want them to. but for goodness sakes, the Parisians do elegance and awesomeness better than anyone. Plus, it's almost impossible to get a bad cup of coffee in Paris. And for those reasons, I adore it. And I take my wife there every year and people go, why do you take your wife there every year? And I'm like, because I want her to love me. <laughs> and it works. We're, right? You don't take your wife yeah. to Scunthorpe. <laughs> Much and by the way, for my Scunthorpe yeah. people, I love you. I love you. <laughs> Scunthorpe was your next choice for favorite city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's how the list goes, Clive. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I now I, I I agree with Paris. This is a very beautiful city, particularly central Paris. I've, there's quite a lot of as a, as with all cities. You know, when you go a bit further out, it, it's a bit uh, grottier and uh, it has yeah. plenty of social problems. But uh, central Paris, of course, it. It retains a sort of unity to it. It was luckily not bombed during the war, which has happened to you know London and other cities. And of course, it has been laid out to to be you know a couple of times. Cardinal Richelieu laid it out, and then Haussmann uh, laid it out again to make these fantastic boulevards, which I think were more to do with defending the place rather than making it beautiful. But you know, it certainly works as a as a as an experience. Oh, no question. Like you say, Central Paris. Uh, Hausman knocked down all of medieval Paris and good for him. Uh, we don't miss it. And the boulevards are beautiful. And uh, like you say, also they have, they, they clean the streets every day and they have mail three times a day. And once you get out, like you say, there's urban problems, but the fantasy of Central Paris, I think persists, even with the corporatization and everything, you'll still find a little place to have wine. All right, for instance, and I'll wrap this up. We were in Paris the year before, before the plague. And um, we went to a little boite in uh, uh, Saint-Germain. And I, the man gave me my check afterward. And I said, um, there must be some terrible mistake. And he said, maybe you should uh, contact Detective Harry Callahan. And I said, I'm coming back tomorrow night to sort this out. And he went, for you, the mystery is never over. So I think the people of Paris are amazing and they, they're not rude. They have a sense of humor. It's like New York. You have to have game. Otherwise they crush you. Yes. I, th I think you've, that's quite a good experience. Uh, so, yeah. Sometimes per Parisian waiters can be a bit. Uh, oh my God. I've had spill water on me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, you've had enough good experiences, and, and, and I also it's worth remembering well, because you excite my interest. Things you've got to remember that uh, Paris might have been destroyed, but for uh, at least the legend goes that Hermann von um, Koltitz um, uh, was ordered to destroy uh, Paris as on his way out, and he said, "No, I can't do that. That would be a dreadful thing to do." That's one version of of what happened. So, so we have tip our hat to him that he didn't burn it all down uh, at the end of the war.
right? I was gonna, that was the name I couldn't come up with. Uh, and as I recall, the German high command wrote him and said, is Paris burning? And he was like, uh, I like it too much here. He had a flat through the whole war. He was enjoying himself. Yes, I think they did. But, uh, it, you know, it, when you're in, and we can salute him, but, you know, when you're ordered to do uh, something um, by the one of the, you know, the absolute worst people that's ever existed in the world <laughs> and you still don't do it, that takes uh, special bravery. It's not just, oh, no, I, I didn't do what my teacher told me to do. That's, you know. <laughs> Anyway, okay, we can we can salute Paris, a very beautiful city and uh, very handy for those of us who live in London. We can get to it quite easily, but uh, it's quite a journey for you. And I know you missing going to places like that at the moment, or have you resumed oh. traveling the world? Uh, not yet. the world yet. We've been around mm. the states, and we were just in Florida with. Uh, as you know, I'm in a group with Ryan Styles, who you know quite mm. well, and sure. um, from whose line? Uh, and Jeff Davis, who you're friendly yes. with, and. Yeah. Uh, well, we're back on the road. We haven't played for 18 months, so we're weepingly grateful to be paid again. And um, we just played Florida, which is a, a, a peninsula that's attached to the United States. And uh, we got them to comply and wear masks and uh, get vaccinated. So it's been a really rewarding to get back on the road. Um, as for coming to England, I suspect we'll be over next year. Well, I hope uh, so. Yes, I right. Hope so. I mean, yeah, play we with sometimes the do, yeah, kind of comedy store, and we sometimes do those stage versions of whose line is it anyway. Perhaps I should ask you at this point because I'm I know too much about it, but I should stand back from it. You know, what is it about improvisation that you enjoy so much? Like you do stand up comedy, you do all these other things, but but this is a long time you've been. You know, you have to think on your wits and and perform in front of, you know, a live audience or. TV camera as appropriate. It's not for everybody, but it's clearly for you and Ryan and uh, the, the the regulars who love doing it. It's just so much fun to make stuff up. First of all, we're lazy and we don't like to learn lines or prepare. And so it's the perfect opportunity to show off uh, without having to do any of that. And the last time you and I did a live show together in 2019 at Edinburgh, I mean, how much fun did we have every night? We did an hour's worth of work and it was you and me and McShane and Phil Jupitus and Steve Frost and we even had Tony Slattery back sometimes. It was quite... Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because we didn't want everything to make sense. And uh, so it, it was just, it's it's glorious, good fun. And we really do have a good time for the time we're on stage together. And uh, I think that's what makes it so personal. And also doing it in Scotland, the Scottish were losing their minds because we did lots of stuff about them. And uh, I think that's what it is. I think that the the, the people, the audience reaction to it is we're not playing characters. We're ourselves. And I think that's, what's made it so great. We, we relate to the audience on a real personal level. And they, and you know, when I come over, people are like, hi, Greg, you know, they're not like, Oh, you played, you know, the archduke or whatever in some TV series. So there's that. Also, you could be chased down and hunted for being yourself. But there you oh. So when you're being very rude to me, that's not a character you're playing. That's just, that's just you, Greg, being rude to me. That's, that's Oh, that's no. Our, our natural enmity, I think, has formed a, a comic bond that uh, is unassailable and that English people have latched onto over the years. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. We're getting too personal now. <laughs> I, knew you'd, I knew you'd push me away once I got close, Clive. Yeah. I've had to. <laughs> I've had some horrible. I've had some horrible experiences in the world of show business. <laughs> Look at those clouds, Paris sky. Who could have built this? Look, just like charade. Let's go on to your third wonder, Greg. Third wonder. All right. Um, the the chimera in Turkey. Now, a lot of people don't know what a chimera is. Uh, a chimera is a, a mythological character, of course, that has a, a, the body of a, of, a, of a gas worker and the head of a lion or something. In any case, it, it spouts fire. And um, there's one in southern Turkey near Antalya. And years ago, I had to do a corporate gig in Antalya. And Jennifer and I took a car over and visited the chimera. And we drove through water and we found a way to get there. And there's no markings for it. When you get to the top of this rocky hill, there's flames shooting out of the ground like an oven they have the blue you know at the bottom and then the orange i just want i want to, i want to just stop you there greg i want to I, I i want to you know hear, hear about this this is fantastic wonder uh because you, you you start with the word chimera and i think you know to an extent that's a word we are familiar with and we, it's these mythical beasts when there are two things pushed together and that term is in use but i you're right i don't think a lot of people know about this this mountain that's on fire 
that you're you're about to describe. So did you know about it and want to go there or did somebody just say, look, if you just got the road, you've heard of this in either from history books or from tourist guides. What what what, what took you there first of all? Well, that's a, uh, very interesting. We were staying in Antalya and um, uh, we were looking in the guidebook and Jennifer goes, there's this place called the Camara. And so we decided to go. And then as we were driving there, we found a tree house in Southern Turkey. There's uh, hotels that are built into trees and you stay in a tree house. And we pulled into this place and it wasn't finished. And I swear to you, um, the guy who ran it was Canadian. So we started talking and I said, can we have tea? And he went, well, the place isn't open yet. And I'm like, well, can we have it anyway? Cause I'm bullshit. So he made us tea and gave us like uh, marathon bars. And that we started chatting and he was building this treehouse hotel. And I said, well, which way is the Camara? And he went, well, you can walk down the beach and it takes three hours, or you can drive through this weird road and it'll be like an hour. And so, like I said, we drove our, uh, our uh, Reno through a river, which it was poorly advised uh, and then found this rocky mountain. And it was dusk when we got there. It was far too late. You're supposed to bring a flashlight because nighttime's the best time to see it because the flames really stand out. And we climbed up this hill and there's little rocks pointing the way. And uh, uh, maybe 100, 100 yards or so, just flames shooting out everywhere. Now, it's mentioned in the Iliad and the, the ancient Greeks thought it was where Hephaestus or Vulcan, if you will, um, had his forge underneath the ground because evidently the flames 2000 years ago were six feet high and there's a whooshing noise like, you know, of flames like everywhere you go and you can extinguish them with say a rubbish bin top. And then if you take the top off, it shoots up again. So at this most like weird, sacred, ancient place, we walk up there and these flames are shooting out of the ground everywhere. And there's a little Turkish guy, uh, with a, a cooler full of two Borg beer and soda pop making tea over one of the eternal flames. <laughs> and I think that's Turkey in a nutshell. Well, this is extraordinary because this, I mean, this belongs, could have been on the original uh, wonders of the ancient world if they'd included sort of natural phenomena like this, but with the with the uh, mythical quality to it. So it could have been, it could be in any modern list of wonders or tourist things. Why isn't it better known? That's what I'd like to know. I think it's because it's in southern Turkey and southern Turkey doesn't get the traffic that Istanbul does or uh, that other places uh, in, in that in southern Asia or Central Asia do. Um, it, it really should be because it's an extraordinary place. And by the way, there was hardly anyone there. I think it's not very well visited. It's hard to get to. And it's not on the beaten track at all. And uh, you can see the uh, the Mediterranean from the top of this hill. So you could absolutely see where the boats pass and would be able to see it from the sea. Um, but it is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I, you know, the natural wonders are like the Grand Canyon and we can all get there. But uh, it, it is an extraordinary thing. So I urge your listeners, if they ever get a chance, you have to go to all the way to Antalya, which is sort of above, if you'll pardon my bad geography, kind of above Cyprus in the Mediterranean, if to orient you. Um, but it is it is quite amazing. I mean, you know, you can go to Yellowstone and see the purple fountains and all that. And uh, But wow, it, it was unforgettable. And I have a picture of Jennifer standing in front of the eternal flames. So, so I have several questions. that You certainly inspired me. I've never been to Turkey. Everyone praises Istanbul as a fascinating city. So here's oh my God. An, uh, certainly another place to go to. So this is a trip to Turkey, we're all going to plan. But I suppose at some point, somebody will set a uh, Hollywood film around this and then there'll be, you, you won't be able to get near the place for people, fans of Dan Brown or or whoever, you know, um, Tom Hanks or whoever, whoever, whichever star. Mm -hmm. it, so, you know, it's very like the beach, you know, then something you can't get near the beach. So, but, right. but I have not, just another couple of questions if I may about this phenomenon. So, do you, are you scared? Are you thinking, wow, or you, or you're just so pleased, you, you just got to bear in mind, this has been like this, roughly like this for thousands of years. So it's, it's got a state of a steady state. It's not like, you know, Yellowstone Park, you, they say that is going to go off with a super volcano at some point. Do you, do you fear this might explode into further life? No, I don't think so. Like you say, Yellowstone is, is a hypocaustic event waiting to happen, but, uh, 
the chimera is just these, they've gone down, I say, as I say, over the last couple of thousand years. But when you're there, it's, it's a rocky field. So you're, you can get as close to them as you wish, or you can stand back from them and take pictures. Uh, the idea is to go at night and bring a flashlight with you because they really jump out. We were there at dusk and it was astonishing. So uh, it's not a scary place at all. And as I say, there's always someone up there making tea. Uh, and in Turkey, it's always apple tea. So you can have a glass of apple tea, if you like, and a beer and really get it on. So it, it's it, Turkey is so accommodating. It's such a beautiful place. You would really love it. And Istanbul is like seven New Yorks, you know. Yes. It's that busy. And, and uh, it's Europe and it's Asia and it's, it's yeah. Christian, it's Muslim. You, you can it's cross a... the bridge and go to both places at one day. Yeah. It's great. Well, you've, you've sold sold me on this, uh, the Chimera, uh, definitely. And it, but it it's, it sounds like there's you know, so many places you go to, and there's you know there's now a, a fifty story hotel there, and it's oh this is lovely. But you should have come here ten years ago. It was great. Right? It was just one fishing boat and and one man who would take you take you on a donkey across the creek, and then you could stay in a in camp. Oh, you should have come then. Uh, but this sounds like it is still w- what it was like then, and we must go there and ruin it so um that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we will covered with lush coniferous and deciduous trees these mountains are host to an ancient wonder the flaming rocks of Yanatash. legend has it that a fire-breathing monster was killed here by a greek god and its breath lives on beneath the rocks Okay, let's go on to your fourth wonder, if we may, Greg. Uh, all right. Uh, I've listed it as weed, but I think your uh, your fans will know it as uh, uh, marijuana. Uh, I don't know if it's a class A drug in England still. I know they've... It's class uh, A. It, it's been uh, changed. It was class B, I think, but it's uh, it's, it's, ah. certainly against, it's certainly against the law. Um, to, if, uh, there's a little bit of edging towards using it medicinally in... Uh, very limited circumstance. It still seems to excite a lot of uh, problems. Now, let, just to get it clear that you're you're not going too much off on a crazy one here because it is legal now in California. Absolutely, there's loads of states and uh, a bunch more states in the last election just legalized it. So, for instance, we were in uh, Maine, which is way up above Canada on the East Coast, and it's it's completely legal there. And what we call it when it's fully legal not just medical, and you'll love this in America, is recreational. So when we say marijuana is fully legal in a state, we mean you can buy it just to get high. Uh, You don't have to have a medical reason anymore, although I have a medical reason, uh, which is if I'm not high, I'm grumpy. Uh, So uh, yeah, Maine has it legal, Massachusetts, um, Arizona, uh, Nevada, Colorado, a bunch of states. Um, the red states are a little bit more resistant, but the thing is, Clive, it's so seductive for uh, my country is uh, it's a money spinner. It really spends money. And all of a sudden you've got roads and schools and income because people love to buy it. All of Canada has it. So from one end of Canada to the other, you can um, buy recreational marijuana. Uh, Alaska, we were in Alaska two years ago and they have it up there. And um Believe me, it alleviates. Alaska is a beautiful place, but it's also a weird place. It's like a Quonset hut. Um, if I don't know if you people know what a, it's like, like an army base, you know, like Hawaii. Hawaii is that mixture of paradise and an army base, and Alaska is too. And so I think uh, legal weed really helps push people along. Um, I, I don't need to promote weed because I don't want everyone to think that all I do is sit around and uh, smoke weed all day. I have. Uh, it, it doesn't ruin your life or career. It just makes it go really slow. Um, I, I find that it helps with the blues. Uh, Louis Armstrong, who was a, a giant of music and uh, helped invent jazz and uh, make jazz popular all over the world. And I think what he said makes more sense than anybody else. He said, it's better than 50 whiskeys. And I think uh, I, I've given up alcohol, by the way. Oh, and, have you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah. And I was a very big fan of alcohol. And I still When did am. that happen? Uh, that's, that's since I last saw you, I fear. Exactly. Yeah. About four yeah. months ago, I, okay. I decided I'd, I'd drunk enough. and uh, But I, I find that uh, he called it, I think he called, Louis Armstrong called weed an assistant. And, and he also said it helps with the blues. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's kind of a, a, a mild way to deal with the world. And uh, it also helps you um, 
relax a little bit. And for me, it always has helped with depression and stuff. So that's why I think it's a wonder. Also, uh, you know, as Bill Hicks said, uh, if you're against marijuana, you're against nature because it grows out of the earth. Yes. Well, <laughs> no, I, I should just make a few points in, in favor of uh, uh, the the status quo in this country. So if you're listening in California, California, Alaska or Maine or other states like that, of course, you may go ahead and uh, smoke as much weed as you like. Uh, listening anywhere else, be aware that it's against the law and you could be sent to prison for up to five years for uh, possessing and certainly dealing and trading in and weed. But but or more. Very prudent. More. more um, uh, I suppose relevantly, is it is it good is it good for your uh, mental health? Are you worried that long term this may do you some harm, Greg? I mean, it doesn't seem to take the edge off you too much yet, but um, you're you're aware there are dangers attached to well, alcohol, you know, legal drugs and illegal drugs. Uh, nothing comes without some sort of uh, price to pay. No, you pay for your kicks. There's no question of that. And I'll, I believe it was Elvis Presley who said, "All things in moderation." Yeah. Um, <laughs> apart, from, uh, apart from hamburgers. Right. It's, it's a bit late in the game for me to uh, say that at long-term use, because I, I've been doing it since the seventies. So, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I don't think promoting drugs of any kind is a, is a great thing, but I do think that marijuana is a little more benign than uh, other things in so much as um, it, I don't think it's a gateway drug, in other words. I think if you drink a lot of alcohol, you might be tempted in England to do other drugs to stimulate yourself. Whereas uh, I think marijuana is, I wouldn't say it's blameless, but it's certainly not uh, ho- as horrifying as other things. It's it's less harmful, I think. The, the reason I find it a wonder is I, I, I think it's uh, it, it's led to a lot of uh, uh, of good things. And it's it's just made, I think, a lot of people feel better and um, you, you, there's no hangover, which is an awesome part of it. All right. Well, well, if you take a sort of more Presbyterian view of the world, which I sometimes you know, you, you think a hangover is a good thing because it reminds you that you've done wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd love the punishment of it. <laughs> the, the last person I spoke to about weed or cannabis uh, was on a, a Radio 4 programme, which I was doing down the line with uh, Seth Rogen, who is a big ah. enthusiast. Uh, and oh, yes. uh, he, he said he was high and he said he is always high. And he's, he's just constant. And, and he also sells it now. He has a, a sort of business, a side, a side hustle involved. So w- would you be tempted to go down that line that, to be involved in, you know, Greg's? I was just going to say, Seth has made a business out of it. Um, I would, actually. I don't, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, Tommy Chong has a line of weed and a lot of celebrities here do. It's, it's really a thing. No one's approached me on it. So I'm wondering if my market's somewhat limited. Uh, if you want to be a, a, a nasal, uh, pedantic, uh, bespectacled, myopic, weed smoker i guess you could jump on my train yeah i suppose you'd have to go into cocaine and call it whose line is it anyway and you'd be you'd be well away but um (laughs) (laughs) these high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain innocently they dance innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors marijuana the burning weed with its roots in hell 
The Offensive is a football mockumentary that follows Premier League club Ashwood City as their money-grabbing owner and his board veer from one crisis to another. Sounds familiar. Well, things are reaching breaking point this January as Real Madrid come calling for Ashwood's star player. Oh, and Patrick's going to accept 180 million euros for Kevin. Wait, what? wait, hang on, wait. Woody, I'm just getting my dick out. Ah, fuck you and your dick. It's just getting my dick out, Woody. It's part of the negotiations. Woody, my dick. Patrick, these are the new work experience intake for the marketing team. Uh, hi. Hi, yeah. Uh... The Offensive, where the thick of it meets the Premier League. Subscribe now and enjoy more than 130 episodes. The Offensive is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. So let's go on to your fifth, uh, your fifth wonder, please, Greg. Well, I'm holding it in my hand, and I'll Are give you? your listeners an idea of what it is. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, uh, long, and yes. uh, uh, you, it has a nib, and uh, you can write with it. And I, what I have is my uh, pen. It was given to me as a gift years ago by Neil Malarkey, who's a member of the Comedy Store Players. And it's a, a beautiful Mont Blanc, um, uh, not a fountain pen, but a ballpoint pen. So you fill it with a little cartridge that you buy, and it's very elegant, and it has black and a little white you know, Mont Blanc uh, snow cap on the top. And the reason why I think my pen is a wonder is I'm a very big fan of writing with a pen in longhand. Uh, I mean, I'm not Tolstoy or whatever, but I'm not even uh, uh, anybody. But uh, that I find, and I've done an informal survey of comedians over the last 10 years of my career, <clears throat> excuse me, people write material or write, uh, books or novels or do their journalism and you you as much as anyone on our computers and then I find that comedians carry a small notebook with them and write with a pen and I've asked almost every comedian that I've worked with over the last decade can I see your notebook and they crack out a notebook so there's something to uh, stand-up comedy and being able to write it on a piece of paper and then you remember it. If I write comedy material on a computer, I can't remember it. I can read it over and over again and it doesn't go into my brain. The physical act of writing it on a piece of paper helps cement it in my mind. I don't know if that's my generation. I'd like to say it's bigger than that because as I say, many of the comics I work with are much younger than I am. And you know, you and I are of a certain age but there's lots of comics in their 20s and 30s who still carry a pen and write in a little notebook. They don't write it on their – they'll say, if I think of a joke, I'll write it on my phone, and then I'll write it in my notebook. So I find that the pen is an astonishing way to connect your brain to your thoughts uh, once you put your thoughts on paper. And there's something to me beautiful and elegant about being able to write in a book. And then read the book that you wrote. And now my handwriting's indecipherable. If you, if I look like I'm writing a prescription, uh, you know, for Valium in the seventies, uh, but uh, I, that's how why I think it's a wonder. And I still carry my pen with me everywhere when I do comedy, and everywhere all the time in case I have to write something down. And I'm sure you do, but other people uh, carry a notebook with me so I can write down my reflections. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to Leonardo, but Leonardo, who is one of the great geniuses of all time always carried with him uh, writing utensils and a notebook, which is why we know so much about da Vinci's thoughts and grocery lists and uh, comments on things. And but sometimes, he wrote, sometimes he wrote uh, mirror writing, didn't he, when he was... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't speak Latin, which I love him for. He was never fluent in Latin, which was the coin then. He wrote in Italian and uh, he wrote backwards so that other people wouldn't read it. And for other reasons, uh, obviously the church in those days wasn't that keen on hearing about humanist theory. Um, so uh, I feel like if it was good enough for Leonardo to carry a notebook around and write his thoughts and sketches down, it's certainly good enough for us mortals who dwell in the lower ranks of intellect. Uh, I just think it's a, it, it's been a, the hugest difference in mankind, right? The, uh, the, the idea of writing 
whether it's with a stylus on mud like cuneiform or on the wall with glyphs or however, writing is the thing that made civilization distinct, aside from agriculture and fire and all the other things. Um, writing is writing seeks to alter the universe because you're putting something down and it's there forever kind of thing. And so that's why I think that the pen is a wonder. Well, I, I, I agree with that last point. I mean, history is often said history is written by the victors, but it's actually written by the, the literate because if yeah. you don't write anything down, nobody knew, nobody knows much about what you're doing other than looking at your broken shards of beaker and burial sites. Uh, I'm, I, so it's this pen, this one particular pen that, that Neil gave you. Why, I mean, just looking at it from my perspective, how have you not lost it traveling the world? How has it not fallen out your pocket on an aeroplane or when backstage writing a you know, joke down ready to go on? How have you managed to keep that pen for a long time? A very good question. I have lost it and I've had to replace it. And I've also broken it. And because Mont Blanc is a fancy place, if you break your Mont Blanc pen, you could bring it into them and they will repair it. They'll give you a new cap and whatever. Even a biro, or as I would call it, um, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a ballpoint. It's a ballpoint pen. It's not a. It's not. It won't be the fanciest of their products. Don't they want to sell sell you a, a fountain pen, and you write more elegantly in uh, in your journal or wherever you're going to write? The problem with fountain pens is uh, they bleed all over, and you have to be very careful when you write. And I think I dash off things. The other thing is, I'm holding a, a hotel pen in my hand right now. Um, I steal the pens from every hotel I go to and I have bags of them because I'm always uh, thinking about writing. All my comedy is written on hotel stationery and then thrown into a bag. And then I try to transfer it to my book. So I think the miracle of pens and the cheap ones work just as well is that you can write your thoughts down anywhere and then uh, get in touch with them later. And for comedy, that's important. You know, we're trying to write jokes and sort them out and it's forever. Basically comedy is making giant lists and memorizing them. Uh, you, you know, you've written enough comedy uh, in your time uh, and especially for other comics to know that that's really how it goes. You write them a sheet of stuff out and they read it off and memorize it. Sure. Now, you're, I'm, I think this is fascinating. It doesn't, it doesn't quite resonate with me all that much. As, uh, you say your handwriting is bad. My handwriting is, is much worse. So I find, <laughs> I, find it fr I find it frustrating when I write myself a note that I have to really work hard to work out what I was saying or what I was writing. So I like the discipline of having to type things down. So not so much, say, with comedy, but I'm often interviewing people and I, I like to type out or, you know, word process out, computer out, six things I'm going to ask them. And I, and I don't look at them as notes when I get to them. The, the, the act of typing them round, that fixes it in my mind, the way you say writing with a pen uh, does it with you. And uh, mm. I, unless I've gone through that process, I'm I'm uncomfortable. I think, oh, I, I know I've thought of six or seven things to say, but unless I've written it down, but typed it out in my case, because that orders my thought processes much better when I have to force myself to type it neatly. And I never manage to force myself to write neatly. I'm always just thinking and waggling my pen over the paper. So we should just, just pause here because people, if they're not in your area, they can't necessarily see you doing stand-up, but they can listen to your podcast, The Smartest Man in the World. So how would you ca characterize that? That's, um, I've listened to some of those. and uh, But you, you comment on all sorts of things. Uh, Sometimes aiming at a joke, sometimes getting laughs, but but giving it's an opinionated thing. It's a halfway between stand-up comedy and a and a TED talk and a bit of improvisation. That one I heard of yours recently, you were you were talking about uh, Patty Labelle and the Bluebells, and you and you went mm. off into all sorts of uh, um, you know mourning her, but also going off into all sorts of bands you'd seen, and um, you're comfortable just I don't say it's just riffing, but you're just going to lots of different areas. No, it, I, it's true, Clive. And I feel like uh, it's, it's for me, the, the wheelhouse uh, for what I like to do, which is, um, as we say in Yiddish, spiel, um, or, or in Spanish, discorsa. Uh, you're talking about your experience or my experiences, one's experiences, and the things you do it and trying to make it funny and trying to uh, bring a little, uh, a little poetry to it. You don't always have to work toward a joke doing a podcast, which is brilliant. But I think when we're at our best, we are being funny at the end of the stories. But also, uh, we were talking about it earlier, uh, the way the world is and how there's no underground anymore. Uh, Jennifer and I feel like it's important to curate 
the world for people. Like, say you were young and you didn't know who Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells were or Nona Hendricks or the members of the Bluebells uh, or LaBelle. Uh, you, you, you have to kind of sort it out for people and say, listen to this record, read about this. You know what I mean? And I think people really enjoy that because your phone is just this gateway to a giant universe, but a lot of people are like confused over what they should be looking for. And so uh, I don't try to uh, promote new things that much because I don't know that much about new things. But if you're going to ask me about soul music from the old days or going to rock and roll concerts from then, I'm more than happy uh, to go on and on and on about it. And I think that's what the show's been about. History, feminism, music, uh, politics and whatnot. And my own special brand of uh, lefty poison liberal politics from San Francisco because that's what I'm bathed in. And I don't want to be something else. There's plenty. By the way, there's plenty of podcasts that talk about um, the male point of view, uh, and I don't really like to promote that. I sort of like to, uh, you know, expand that a little bit. That all men don't need to. We don't need to separate the world into. Oh my God, the genders are so different you couldn't possibly understand them. And I think a lot of it's been Jennifer's influence, but we'll get to that. What kind of pen is that? This pen? Yeah. Oh, this is an astronaut pen. It writes upside down. They use this in space. Oh, wow, that's the astronaut pen. Yeah. I heard about that. Where yeah. did you get it? Oh, it was a gift. Oh, a lot of times I write in bed, and I have to turn and lean on my elbow to make the pen work. <laughs> take the pen. Oh, no. Go ahead. I couldn't. Come on, take the pen. I can't take Do it. Do me a personal no, favor. No, I'm not take comfortable. The I cannot take it. Take the pen. Are you <laughs> sure? I'm positive. Take the pen. What were we talking? We're talking about your pen. So, what is your sixth uh, wonder, Greg? My sixth wonder is black and white movies. Um, I don't think the past was better than it is now, but I also I find that uh, Jennifer and I have a film club called the Greg Proops Film Club. And we don't really show any contemporary movies. Contemporary meaning like we'll show movies from the last 20 or 30 years, but nothing like today. I don't feel the need to promote, um, you know, the Marvel universe of superheroes. That certainly gets enough play on its own. And I think that there's a poetry and mood to black and white movies. Um, people, you'll hear people say sometimes, I hate black and white movies because they're not real. And for me, the artifice is the point. I love how not real they are. And some of the best genres... Uh, for instance, the old universal horror movies with uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff or the old black and white um, film noir movies with Robert Mitchum and Dick Powell and Jane Greer and Jane Russell and, Rob, you know, all that. Um, there's a romance to it. And also shooting in black and white is an utterly different experience than shooting in color. You can use the light and shading to make a point, um, I think anyone would say that Fritz Lang uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, Jacques Tournier or something, using the absence of light and making the screen all black and pointing out different points of light is a whole nother way of watching cinema. And it's very exciting to me. Like, I was on the plane yesterday and they had Casablanca, of all things, available on the plane. And I've only watched it 5,000 times. Yeah. You can't but, not watch it when on the plane, can you? It just you, you, Right? It's just one of those movies you want to watch on a, on a plane journey, it's, I find. Well, yeah. that's the thing. For yeah. people who haven't seen Casablanca, it's not just a cornball old movie. It's really an anti-fascist diatribe. Everyone who's in the movie was an anti-fascist hero, literally, <laughs> including the guy who's the croupier. He escaped from the Nazis. And, of course, Conrad Veidt, who plays the Nazi, he escaped from the Nazis. And, um, but there's this shot of Ingrid Bergman when she asks Sam to play as time goes by. And then he plays it. And then Bogart storms into the bar and he can't believe Sam's playing it. And then a shot that I'd never noticed in the 5,000 times I've watched it, it cuts back to her and it's a black and white shot of her head turn. And Ingrid Bergman is beyond gorgeous, just an ephemeral, shimmering beauty. And her eyes are full of tears because after listening to As Time Goes By for just 30 seconds, she's crying about what their love affair was in Paris. And it's a shot, a reverse shot. First it shows him angry, then it cuts back to her. And I thought, this wasn't be the same in color. There's a the unreality and the dreamlike quality, I think, that black and white bring 
is uh, what I'm there for. It's to me endlessly exciting. Like we showed a Jacques Tati film uh, at the film club and 150 people showed up on a Tuesday night in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is not a Pollyanna kind of, hey, good times place. It's a very cynical, you know, we deal in reality here. And reality means I'm going to kill you to steal your idea. Um, (laughs) And 150 people showed up to watch a movie that's 60 years old. uh, That's basically a silent film about uh, a goofball in France. If you know Jacques Tati's comedies, they're all slapstick. And the place was howling. And I think that's the magic and power of it. Well, I was just wondering when you said black and white movies, because that could be. Well, first of all, I must. I my first thought was an unkind one, which is, I think you're a, you aren't you sort of colorblind, uh, Greg? So aren't all films I, black I and white? Am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm deaf. I I have glaucoma, uh, and I'm kind of color. Like I have to ask my wife: Is this suit blue or is it black? So so I don't wear black pants with blue. Uh, coat like uh, our former uh, the former guy as we call him <laughs> so uh, all so all uh, movies are black and white movies to you so you, no you, you I, can narrative... <laughs> I can see color I can see color I mean all right, well, when, when the Wizard of Oz changes from black and white to color yeah. I, I notice you got it yeah <laughs> well, but, but, but obviously black and white can mean you know an era of movies for when they you know they you know, color hadn't really been perfected, so that takes you back. Because there are some films that have been made later than that. Uh, I suppose, uh, well, one of the best ones to me anyway is you know, some like it hot, which was uh, deliberately shot in black and white to give it a sort of ancient feel to it. And uh, uh, but you're right, though, some young people are resistant to watching black and white movies. It's true, and they they feel like it's not real. But I would argue, like, is watching something on your phone on a five inch screen more real to you? than something in black and white. And I'm glad you brought up some like it hot because Wilder went out of his way. They were going, they could have shot the movie in color because it was made in, you know, uh, 1950. Uh, he said that putting Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in women's drag wouldn't play in color. You'd see the makeup, you'd see the seams. And also because it's set in the twenties, he said it, uh, it absolutely took people back to that era. And so that's why it works. And then of course you think about, uh, Patrice Leconte's um, Girl on a Bridge, which is in black and white, or um, uh, 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 Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein, which absolutely works because it's in black and white. Yes. Uh, do, do you ever go, um, I mean, I know you know plenty about British movies as well, but would your film club go into like those Ealingy comedies kind of things? I don't know, Lady Vanishes or Kind Hearts and Coronets, those, those sort of... Um, or you might call ancient British uh, black and white movies. Oh, absolutely. We haven't shown any, but you're giving me a very good idea of what we should show coming up. Um, There's a wonderful one with um, Kenneth Moore called Genevieve about the car. And then of course, all, all the Ealing ones like Lavender Hill mob, and they've done some terrible remakes of them. Uh, um, uh, I think those play because they're, uh, you know, that, the British comedies rely on the actors are brilliant and the dialogue is brilliant and the pacing. And it's not, if it was in Technicolor, it wouldn't be funnier. I mean, like you can compare those magnificent men and their flying machines, which is in rich color to a lavender hill mob or whatever, which is in not color, but has Stanley Holloway. And uh, I, I think a lot of the show is always who's in it and the writing. I think that, Writing and editing are kind of everything in film. Uh, and the, having said that, uh, everything was visuals. <laughs> um, no, I adore the yeah. Ealing comedies. And, and yeah. Alec Guinness, you know, is a genius of, of that genre uh, because he so often plays people that have no integrity whatsoever. Yes. Well, he's not too bad in Kind Hearts and Coronets. It's Dennis Price who has no no integrity. Uh, just, just gets, uh, make sure you get the American print of uh, Kind Heart and Coronets if you're going to play it. Because, uh, oh, really? Um, yes. Uh, well, uh, this is a, 
I don't know how interesting it is, but it's a, it's an interesting discussion. Kind House of Christ, because as people will perhaps know, it's uh, the Dennis Price character is basically working his way through all his relations, killing them uh, so that he can be vengeance on his ancient family and inherit the title. So he kills them in a lot of amusing ways, and we find that very entertaining. Uh, but when it first came out, <laughs> there's a subplot which caused some difficulty in America because uh, he's he's having uh, an affair with the girl who rejected him when he was poor and unimportant so that was regarded as a bit not poor we didn't worry about it here it was based on a book where his mother had married the wrong person the wrong person was jewish and that just after ah. the war, they thought they thought that's not that doesn't that doesn't seem right uh, so they changed it with uh, to an italian she runs off with her italian singing master which kind of uh, is, is better in many in all sorts of ways but that so it had to be changed for that and you think well they've got through that now we wouldn't worry quite so much about the sexual aspect Nobody ever seems to worry about the the homicide that is going on. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. But right at the end, right at the end, there's a little um, little rhyme that they quote to each other, and it caused trouble in America, but not here, not in uh, Britain. Uh, it's the one that begins "Eeny, meeny, miny, mo," and it's nothing to do with the story, other than because he's in a quandary of what he's going to do to get himself out of prison. And uh, so in America, they changed it. And uh, but I've seen it in uh, broadcast in in Britain, and they stick with. Um, the original version, they could easily take it out because you don't see the person using the words, so they could easily remove it. And I'm not one for uh, boulderizing all, all things from the past, but it's 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 going to it's going to cut, you know, it's going to cause grief uh, in, in the modern world, and it doesn't need to. And uh, but it's interesting how many different things cause offence over the years on what is a cheery comedy, really. Uh, but it depends on what you're more worried about at any given time. So that's just my no, tip for <laughs> no question. And and hilariously, one of his uh, rich nits in the movie ha- has a name that I couldn't believe they got away with in the fifties: Ass Coin Gas Coin, <laughs> which is absolutely hilarious in any era when you hear it. <laughs> it seemed appropriate that he who had lived amidst the cannon's roar should die explosively. I therefore concealed in a pot of caviar. A simple but powerful homemade bomb. And through the post, I sent the caviar to the general. Used to get a lot of this stuff in the Crimea. One thing the Ruskies do really well. All right, so black and white movies. That's uh, so it's the it's the look of it, the feel of it, uh, and but it, there's a sort of nostalgic element there, isn't there? Really, to films when they were. I mean, something like uh, Casablanca, you mentioned, that was just a standard studio movie. They didn't—they didn't think they were making a classic while they were making. It. I think—I think they were writing the ending before they, while they were filming it. They—they they didn't know how they, whether whether they're going to go off together or leave each other behind. It was—it uh, was that sort of. On, and they discovered they'd made something that's, you know, still shown on planes, whatever it is, 50, 60 years later. We've come, um, we've taken our time to get there, but we're on to your seventh and final wonder, if you would, Greg. I would would adore to, Clive. And as you said, a lot of, you thought I might have picked Caravaggio or, uh, you know, uh, the Bhagavad Gita or the Ganges or something, but I've picked marriage. And uh, the reason why I think marriage is a wonder is it forces a unity of existence it forces you to give up yourself and become part of a larger thing, which is a couple. And um, uh, in my experience, uh, and I'm lucky, and I know you've been married a long time, uh, it, 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 it's changed my life for the better. I don't know that I would have been able to do anything that I've been able to do over the last million years if I hadn't married uh, someone as formidable and intelligent and funny as my wife. Now, I grant you she's gorgeous. I'm not that deep. But... Uh, she uh, she's put me on the straight and narrow. She's made me think about what I'm doing. Like a couple of years ago, I hadn't made an album in a while. And she goes, why don't you make an album? And I actually said to her, and this is what a marriage is like. I said, I haven't written any new material. And she went, well, then why don't you write some? And this is the kind of uh, reminders that men need uh, to get off their butt and be a better person. And um, she's taught me everything about feminism, history, uh, looking at the world from a different point of view. And uh, that's why I think marriage is so valuable. If you can find the right person, um, it can change you to be a better person and maybe make you aspire to 
do something different with your life than you would have done. I think I would have been a petty criminal drug addict if I hadn't gotten married. No, but you've been married to Jennifer so long that I I think you've always been married to her, virtually always married to her since I've known you. And yeah. uh, she's always been a very serene presence. Uh, that's the thing that strikes me about her, that that mm. uh, it makes her, well, let's say, a sort of a contrast to, you know, a hyperactive uh, improvising comedian. Uh, so I can see how that might work. But that, I mean, that is the trouble with, you know, putting marriage as a wonder of the world. Uh, when people ask me, you know, how, you know, what's the secret of a long marriage? And you touched on it there. You you must pick the right person or the right person must pick you. You must get married to the right person. Otherwise, um, it, it's a difficult thing to maintain. But you found the right person. Well, it's difficult even with the right person, obviously. There's always fights and there's always disagreements. And uh, I, a friend of mine yesterday who you know, Jeff Davis, uh, we were in Florida and it was early in the morning. And he, he's never been married. And he said to me, well, how do you do it? And I'm like, don't be right all the time. It's, it's, it's super important to relinquish. I mean, you and I are two people who are certain we're right all the time. And so in order to get along with other people in the world, you have to give that up. And in order to get along in a marriage, you have to admit that you're not always right and let other people be right and let other things as they so brilliantly say in All About Eve, uh, that screenplay by Mankiewicz, uh, what is the what is uh, Eve's boyfriend's? I mean, um, Margot Channing's boyfriend Bill says to her, "You have faults, and I've tried not to let them be too important." You know, you really have to let other people be who they are. And uh, yeah, marriage is difficult for a lot of people. Most, I th what is it? Half of the men in divorce or whatever. Something like that. But and uh... I still maintain that it's a. a a fantastic institution and not uh not just a heterosexual institution it's a fantastic institution for everybody if you can make the effort and uh give yourself up to the force of will of being part of a couple then uh, untold things are available to you uh because you'll be able to uh, see things about yourself that you couldn't see and you'll be able to learn things from another person that you didn't know you could learn. And also the shared experience of having someone uh, that you're intimate with, that you trust. Uh, I think that if you can trust the person you're married to, then you have something that most people in the world don't have, which is someone that you trust. And uh, I know that's not as funny as it might be, uh, but I mean, there's a reason why marriage was invented. Uh, and it's not just so that women could be chattel. Uh, uh, and and I, I, that's why I think it's a wonder. Or it has been for me. Uh, when I look at a lot of couples that are so impressive, uh, couples that ride together, couples that create together, um, and they're still around. I mean, my goodness, we live in a world with uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce and uh, uh, uh Joe Biden and his wife, Jill. I mean, there's lots of people to look up to who have wonderful marriages where it seems like they're both getting a lot out of it. And that's why I still subscribe to it. On your podcast, uh, Jennifer is is there as a presence, sort of guiding you and uh, prompting you occasionally. So are you doing more and more sort of work together, you know, creating the comedy together? Or is that just her being a, a supportive wife? That. No, no. It, it, the the whole point when I first started it, I did it all on my own, and then we started doing it together on the mic or putting her live in the show. And then, of course, once we were contained in the containment for the last year and a half, we just decided to just do the show together. So it's been a learning process for me because I've had to be tolerant and let her talk, and then. Uh, not think that I'm right all the time. So I've had to learn a lot, and I think it's added a lot to the show. I think. People uh, have really appreciated, obviously, hearing her finally after 10 years and um, then getting an idea of just how funny and impressive and what a voluminous knowledge she has of music, art, history, feminism and all that. And the show's always been kind of her baby. And uh, I have been proud to sort of put her message forward. And I think it's made me a better person. And it also keeps us, for lack of a better uh, way of putting it 
from being a, a show about male supplements and and men and all that thing that so many podcasts are about. Uh, and I think that's the tedious part of podcasting is that there's those are the podcasters who get all the play. Uh, you know. So, so, Greg, are you saying that he, I mean, this is a what if, but if you hadn't met Jennifer, uh, you, 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 maybe just as a joke, you said, oh, well, they, you, she talked to you about so everything from this and that to feminism. I mean, you, you might not have, you might not have uh, gone down those thought processes without her, or was that something you'd, you'd have got to anyway, do you think? I don't think so. I think it was pivotal in my life. And that's why I find it to be a wonder. I, I don't think I would have been the, anywhere near able to do anything that I've been, I mean, not that I've had so many vast accomplishments, but I have had a, been able to be a comic for over 30 years and that in itself in the world is something. And, um, uh, and, and be in a relationship, a committed relationship for all that time. And so, yes, I agree. Yes. I, what you said is absolutely true. When we're together, we spend a lot of time together. And when we're not together, we're, there's a lot of time we're not together. So maybe that's the key. <laughs> <laughs> that that way yes. she doesn't get sick of me and want to kill me all the time okay look greg we, we're, we're definitely <laughs> running out of time thank you for sharing your seven wonders with me it's i think it's the longest conversation i've had with you without you sniping at me about something so <laughs> <laughs> i i have to choose the uh the wonder of wonders from your list of seven okay the one the one which struck me as particularly wonderful as you described this podcast i'm tempted because you're so uh it's so moving we're talking about your marriage but uh, when you were talking about it earlier on i th i thought i must go for this chimera in turkey because it is a wonder of the world i wasn't really aware of it before you uh, were talking about it uh -huh. i haven't seen it i haven't been there um, subject to the various pandemics that may be flying around the world, I will make it my business to make an effort to go and see it uh, and to do a whole trip to Turkey as a result of what you've uh, said about it. So that makes it the your wonder of wonders. So thank you very much for drawing that and all your other wonders to my attention. I'm I'm super chuffed that I could hip you to something you didn't know about. Yeah, no, it's good. Uh, don't start sniping now. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> thank you very much, Greg. Greg Proops, hope to see you again soon. Big love, Clive. My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.